Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Daniel Prisbilko. Today, I've entitled the message, Telling Yourself the Truth. Last week, my mum was contacted by a scammer. And, you know, it happens all the time to us, don't, doesn't it? Every day we get something, delete, delete. And, you know, she almost succumbed 100% to this text message of a random number that, you know, started off by saying, Hi, Dad, you know, I've dropped my phone. Um, I've got this other phone. Don't try to call me because I can't hear anything. She fell for it. And, uh, and <clears throat> unfortunately, she wrote back a little in English and a little in Polish. And so the scammer figured out, okay, this person speaks Polish. So using Google Translate, um, started writing to my mum in Polish, and she thought it was me. I can write Polish, but not as bad as Google Translate. (laughs) Incredibly, you know, mum got as far as going to the bank to deposit some money. And then, thankfully, she talked to the right people and she thought, you know what, I'm just going to call Daniel's wife, Geraldine, to see what's going on. I don't know why she didn't call me. (laughs) Um, So she calls my wife and she says, what's going on with Daniel? Of course, nothing was going on with me. I was fine. Mum thought I had lost my mind. She was writing to me, she's like, Daniel, you're stressed, take it easy, you know, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Uh, And, you know, afterwards when I was talking to mum, I said, mum, if you'd just looked at the Polish language there, you know, it uses masculine and feminine, etc., it's just mixing it all up, you would have known that it's not me. And the person's using language that I just never use. All you needed to do, mum, is pick up the phone and talk to me. But she'd fallen for the scammer's first lie, you know. Even right at the front, she thought, how come Daniel's writing, hi, Dad? He's writing to me, it's Mum, you know. So there was a few red flags along the way, but um, she didn't pick up the phone and get the right information. Thankfully, she didn't go through with the scam. But, you know, in recent times, we're we're bombarded, aren't we, with, with scammers, with fake news, with false information that the world is full of today, and really, it may be closer than we think. The story is told of a father who approaches his cheerfully playing children. They are playing with, with, with the next-door neighbor's kids, and uh, the father says, What's so funny, kids? As he sees them all laughing and... Uh, One of them replies, Dad, we're just trying to figure out which one of us has told the biggest whopper. You know, which one of us has told the biggest lie? And Dad says, well, when I was a kid, I never even thought about telling a lie. The children huddle together and they whisper some things. And then one speaks up and says, I guess that's it. Dad's the winner. Dad's the winner. You know, as... uh, as part of the Ten Commandments, 
um, Exodus 20, verse 16, tells us, you shall not bear false witness. Essentially, don't lie. How many of you have ever told a lie? A half-truth. Hmm? A white lie. Okay, we can all hold our stones then, right? We can all hold our stones because if all have sinned, there's not one of us that can cast the first stone. The complete uh, ninth commandment there continues with the addition, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Does that mean it's okay to lie to anyone else except for your neighbor? Mm. What about yourself? Have you ever lied to yourself? Unfortunately, we're probably all guilty of that one too. And it's an important one to recognize because unless you recognize it, God can't actually change our heart. We need to begin to understand that we can deceive ourselves. You know, there can be no repentance if there's no recognition of wrongdoing, right? If I want Jesus to take my twisted life and make the crooked ways straight, I need to be aware of my own self-deception. Is that true? My own self-deception. Have you ever thought about that? Most of the time, we always think we're right. Isn't that true? Jeremiah 17 Verses 9 to 10 tell us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Ouch. <laughs> Who can know it? I, even the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. That means the secret parts. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We need to be aware of our own self-talk. You know, when was the last time you talked to yourself? Children do it out loud all the time, don't they? Hmm? I know my daughter sings in the shower to herself and then she'll talk to herself as well. That's okay. It's, kids do that. But you know, as adults, if we do that, people think we're loopy. <laughs> but have you ever listened to the words that you tell yourself? In the book... Telling Yourself the Truth. Anyone familiar with that book? Telling Yourself the Truth? No one. It's a book that we use when I've run a, uh, a program here some years ago called the, um, the Depression and Anxiety Recovery Program. Uh, that's one of the books that, that we recommend that people read. Telling Yourself the Truth. The Christian authors there, William Backus, he's a psychologist, and Mary... Chapain, a counsellor, Christian counsellor, they write that if you tell yourself something enough times and in the right circumstances, you will believe those words whether true or not. Self-talk is what we tell ourselves in our own minds, in our thoughts. It may just be generally about life, it may be about the past, the present, the future. It, uh, it may be about God. It may be about ourselves. Or it may be about other people. We all do it. All the time. 
Isn't that true? The problem is when we don't tell ourselves the truth. When people do this to or about themselves, you know, they might, for instance, they might be putting themselves down. You know, they might say to themselves, oh, I, I have no talent or I'm just no good or people don't like me or I'm uninteresting. Instead, you know, they should be saying, thank you, God, for the talents you've given me. Or thanks, God, for making me unique. I'm one of a kind. There's not another one like me. Or, you know, thank you, God, that I can be content in you. It's, it's you know, it's just totally turning it on its head, the self-talk. But on the flip side, of course, people could be telling themselves something quite opposite. You know, this place just couldn't function without me. It would fall over. Or, you know, I'm the most talented and important person here. Now, both of these positions are extremely unhealthy, aren't they? Um, And they're not telling yourself the truth. Of course, self-talk, as I mentioned, may not be about you. It might be about others. It might be about God. You know, people say, it's all your fault, God. Why did you allow this to happen? Or they they might be saying, you know, that person is so selfish, it's all because of him or her that I'm in this situation. If you self-talk it enough, you'll actually believe it. True? You'll actually believe it. You'll believe that a lie is actually the truth. And then the problem gets compounded, perhaps even exponentially, when you vocalise your thoughts with others. And of course, that can then be called what? Gossip or slander, or we just call it for what it is, lies. Self-talk that degrades others, ultimately degrades and harms ourselves and others. It leads us down a dark path that generally does not end well. And, uh, you know, the Bible gives us many examples of this in operation. The prime example, of course, is Lucifer, right? The father of lies who got the ball rolling. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that Lucifer was initially what? The anointed cherub, right? Uh, A high and holy angel. Perfect in all his ways, Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 28. Then Isaiah 14 tells us that he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted God's position. He wanted his authority. Now, how did he go about undermining God? How did he do it? By telling lies. Lies to himself, initially, in his own thoughts, and then lies to others. And that's why Ezekiel writes here in Ezekiel 28, verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Lucifer was not trading in shares or bonds or secondhand, you know, intergalactic spaceships. He was trading lies. That's what Lucifer is trading here. He's trading words. He's trading ideas. He's trading lies with with all the angels. For how long? Over what period of time? We don't know. 
But according to Revelation 12, we do know that there was a war in heaven as a result of it. And one third of the angels of heaven were deceived by his trading and they were cast out. Martin Luther said, lies are like a snowball. You know, as they roll, they get bigger and bigger. Telling yourself lies develops into telling lies to others. And of course, it can have eternal consequences, not only for ourselves, but dragging others also into the dragnet. The Bible continues then, you know, I kind of work through starting off in, in Genesis and working through different case studies, if you like. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we go to the serpent and Eve as, you know, the lies are then spread to the earth. In Genesis 3, we see how when Satan comes to Eve via the, the serpent medium, he casts doubt on God's words, doesn't he? He shares half-truths regarding the consequences of sin. And so here in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, we read, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. True or not true? <laughs> not true, because it's... It, <laughs> You know, there's a little bit of everything in there, isn't there? Eve didn't die straight away, but the process of death began, didn't it? Toying with this idea in her mind that he gave her, Eve was deceived and acted on this forbidden fruit. And we see the reality of death uh, remaining with us until this day. Moving along then to, to, to Cain and Abel uh, in Genesis, we learn the sad story of Earth's very first family, where Cain comes and, and kills his brother. And then he lies to God that he doesn't know where his brother Abel is at. But it began with Cain first lying to who? Lying to himself, right? About what is the right and proper burnt offering. God must have clearly, you know, explained to them given them the instructions of the, of the lamb sacrifice that was pointing forward to the, the Messiah. But, you know, Cain thought that his roast vegetables would be best. And so in Genesis 4, here verses 4 and 5, we read that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord accepted Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell lying to himself, deceiving himself, ended up in disaster for Cain and Abel, but the whole family. If we move on to Jacob in uh, Genesis chapter 27, um, the name Jacob means to usurp or to overreach or deceive. And this is exactly what we see Jacob doing in Ezekiel chapter 27, whereby stealth Jacob receives his blind father's blessing. We read here in uh, Genesis 27, uh, verse 24, um, we read that uh, Isaac says to Jacob, then he said, are you really my son Esau? 
And Jacob responds, I am. Jacob deceives Isaac and receives the blessing. But then he becomes a fugitive, dividing his family, never to see his mother again. Uh, you know, the one who sowed, actually, the one who sowed the plan of deception in his mind. If we go on to um, Samson in the book of Judges, uh, we see that Samson always liked Philistine girls. And uh, that got him in trouble more time than once, right? But after lying to his latest girlfriend about where his, you know, superhuman strength came from, she eventually prided out of him that his divine instructions had been not to cut his hair as a Nazarite. Once she knew that and she cut his hair, he lost his, this God-given strength. And then she calls for the soldiers to come and she says... Here in uh, verse 20 of Judges 16, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. His eyes were taken out. He was tied up like an animal and made to work like an ox. A sad way to finish up. But, you know, again, as we step back for a minute, what was Samson telling himself in the lead up to all of that? What was he telling himself? He was probably saying, I'll be okay. Isn't that true? I'll be okay. I've been okay before. It's okay to play with fire. I'll be okay. He must have been lying to Delilah about his strength initially, but really all the time, Samson had been lying to himself. The next story I want to share is about Sanballat and Nehemiah. Maybe Sanballat is a little bit less known to you. Anyone heard of Sanballat? If you're doing the BHP... Every year, you would have heard of him by now, right? Uh, when we look at this story of Nehemiah, who was rebuilding the broken down walls of Jerusalem, we see that there was opposition all the time. And that's why Nehemiah had, you know, the workmen carrying their swords. He had armed guards uh, around whilst building the wall. And we find an interesting passage there in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, where Sanballat, who is one of Nehemiah's main opponents, tries to get Nehemiah to come out of the city and meet him in one of the villages, clearly so he could harm him there, so maybe he could kill Nehemiah. But Nehemiah knew his tricks, and every time he said, no, no, I'm not going out, not going out, said over and over again, and then finally a messenger comes a fifth time. Five times they tried. Fifth time, he comes to Nehemiah with the letter in hand. And this is what we read there in verses 6 and 7. It was written like this. It is reported, this is Sanballat's word to Nehemiah. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. 
And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be recorded, reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. He's saying, come, come on out, meet me in the village. What is Sanballat trying to do here? Of course, he still wants to lure Nehemiah out to kill him, but he's threatening Nehemiah with what? With lies, right? That he will report Nehemiah to the emperor. This was, you know, they were part of the Medo-Persian empire. That Nehemiah plans to be the new king in Jerusalem. Of course, Nehemiah had no such plans. And uh, he wasn't falling for this scheme that Sanballat was, was, was up to. And so then the interesting verse here is verse 8. Verse 8 reads, Then I, that is Nehemiah, sent to him saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Ah, you invent them in your own heart, in your own mind. And this is the key, you know, you invent these ideas in your own mind, wicked plans, sin, beginning in the heart, in the thoughts of the mind, in our own self-talk, if acted upon result in harm, which sadly can affect, you know, one's eternity or at least years potentially of one's life. You know, we could talk here about many other characters in the Bible. In the New Testament, you know, there was Pilate, there was Judas, there was, of course, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, but I want to finish up today on Nebuchadnezzar, because despite errors, Nebuchadnezzar was able to turn things around. And I personally believe that um, in a world today that's experiencing ever-increasing levels of, you know, mental health issues, etc., we ought to be looking closer at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Just in summary for you, in the book of Daniel, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar witnesses some amazing things as God works through different people and different events that happen that Nebuchadnezzar actually witnesses. You know, in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar sees how Daniel and his friends are ten times wiser than those that go along with the customs and practices of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel's God is the God of gods, having revealed this you know, secret dream uh, back to him and reminded him uh, of the things that are to take place. In Daniel chapter 3, after rebelling against those predictions in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar builds a great big golden statue and wants everyone to bow down to this uh, at the threat of, if you don't do it, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace. But again, he recognizes that only God could deliver from this fiery furnace. It happened right in front of his eyes. And then somehow, having seen all of these things, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's self-talk lets him down. Nebuchadnezzar's self-talk lets him down. God warns the king in a dream in, in Daniel chapter 4 that he's to be cut down, to live like an animal. 
Even the king's friend, the prophet Daniel, came to him and he said, King, break off your sins and show mercy to the poor to prevent this dream from being fulfilled. But despite all of what he had seen and experienced, despite all of the warnings, exactly a year later, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 4, that as King Nebuchadnezzar was glorying in his own wisdom, he was there refusing really to submit to God. We read there in verses 29 to 31, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon and the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You see, it's all I, my. While the word was still in the king's mouth, we read that a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And sadly, as predicted in uh, the prophetic dream given a year earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. And he lives like an animal for the next seven years, living in the outdoors, eating grass with the beasts his fingernails getting all long, his hair getting all long and uncut. But mercifully, the story doesn't end there. The story ends well. As the king shares his own personal testimony in Daniel chapter 4. That's, Daniel chapter 4 is like the king's personal testimony. And there we read in uh, verses 34 and 37, at the end of the time, meaning at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, says, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. His mind returned to him. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and all his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Self-talk that is proud, that looks to self and does not honor God, is a self-talk that is not telling yourself the truth. It results in harm to self, in harm to your relationship with God and harm in your relationship with others. It's probably why Proverbs says, Solomon says here in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, he instructs us to what? Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Our thoughts, our self-talk generally end up in words and actions, doesn't it? And if they're negative, they'll end up hurting ourselves and hurting others. An Argentine writer, poet, wrote this. Don't talk unless you can improve the silence. <laughs> That's a bit strong, I think. I think the Apostle Paul puts it better here for, for us, for a community of faith in Ephesians 4.29, when he says, when you talk, 
Do not say harmful things, but say what people need. Words that will help others become stronger. Then what you say will do good to those who listen to you. We all need to be aware, friends, of our self-talk. We need to ask ourselves, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it necessary? Is it kind to determine whether it is even helpful in building up the body of Christ? In our scripture reading that uh, Joyce read just earlier from James chapter 3, we learn about the tongue there, don't we? And we read, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, Paul writes, this ought not to be so. But could this be you? Could this be me? Could it be us? In what areas might we be stretching the truth, telling ourselves and others half-truths instead of full-truths? Oftentimes, rather than sharing grievances with others or sharing some fake news, uh, sharing you know things that aren't 100% true, what we should be doing is picking up the phone right? And talking to someone directly rather than what? Trading behind the scenes. Isn't that true? Talk to the person. When negative self-talk is actioned, it will ultimately affect not only yourself, but it will affect others. Friends, the good news is that Jesus can help each one of us. The Bible tells us here in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world by what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we become God's children, the great I dies. Huh? Isn't that true? When we become God's children, the great I dies. And there's a change that takes place. The Apostle Peter's self-talk and fear caused him to become violent in the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't it? <laughs> Grabbed his sword and he cut that guy's ear off. And then later, it caused him to deny Jesus three times. He would likely have kept going down in a downward spiral had his eyes not met the kind and forgiving look of the Saviour, Jesus. Is that true? Luke puts it this way in Luke 22, verses 61, 62. And the Lord looked, turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the words of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Friends, looking to Jesus helps us to stop the lies. True? Looking to Jesus helps us to stop the lies and to tell ourselves the truth. It helps us to turn from the direction that we're going, telling ourselves that's okay. Looking to Jesus helps us to repent. And that's why Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new.
Is your self-talk positive or negative? Are you even aware of your self-talk? <laughs> Most of the time we're not, isn't that true? Is it helpful or harmful? Remember, friends, look to Jesus. In Jesus there is forgiveness. With Christ there comes change. Friends, today how many of you would like to say, God, by your grace, help me, help me to renew my mind. Help me to be aware of what I'm thinking before I speak. Would you like that? Yeah? Help me to be aware by your grace. Friends, may God help each one of us. May he give us each one a change of heart. May the Lord help us to be peacemakers, to bless others and lift others up, encouraging and building up others, because that's what we're called to do. Amen. This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org.
Margie Salcedo Rice sang, I Have Fixed My Mind. And before that, we heard Carly Fletcher sing, Looking Unto Jesus. And coming up next, the Alverson family will sing, He's Always Been Faithful. Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Harold Harker. This story is entitled Going Back, Giving Back. Isaiah 49, 15 and 16 reads, Can a woman forget her nursing child? and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. 
I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and lived there until the age of eight when I moved overseas for 10 years, four in the South Pacific and six in Central America. We established an auto mechanics and body shop in the small community of Bella Coola on the west coast of British Columbia, Canada, when the war broke out between British Honduras, now Belize, and Guatemala. After less than two years, I left the family business and became a dental assistant. For the next 18 months, I travelled to most of the remote native communities along the British Columbia coast, like Bella Bella, Klemtu, or Katasu Ocean Falls. I built my own log home in Bella Coola, then sold it, and moved to the interior of British Columbia, where I worked as a gold miner in the little town of Likely. In 1994, I received an invitation to attend a school reunion in Fiji. I decided I didn't want to go, insisting that I was way too busy making money. My wife Jackie maintained that I should go because I never stopped talking about the place where I'd left my heart as a child. Two days later, Jackie had purchased a ticket to Fiji, stating, I have a real strong feeling that you need to go. I was a little upset, but the next day I boarded the plane, all the while consoling myself that it was for only a few days. Little did I know that my life would be dramatically altered that week. I landed in Fiji, rented a car, and drove three hours around the island to Fulton College, where I had attended grade six back in 1973. Many years ago, my father had moved us there while he helped to build a new men's dormitory. When I reached the school, I parked, got out of the car and stood there for a moment. Then a tidal wave of emotions hit me that to this day still wash over me. I stood by the car and listened to the people singing in church and I realised that my heart had never really left this place. This was a place where as a child I was happy. It was a place where both of my parents were with me. I recall that only a few months before moving here, my parents had reconciled after a year of separation in which I did not see my mother. I was nine at the time, and in my mind, we were now in a place so far away that neither of my parents could leave again. It was a place where I could feel safe again. The music of the South Pacific is something that touches the soul. Overwhelmed with tears, I stood for a while, trying to regain my composure before going in and taking a seat. I wasn't sure why I was so emotional at first. Then I realised that I had let 20 years pass by thinking only of myself and what I could get out of life. I had forgotten that the true purpose we are placed on this earth is to serve others by serving God. Afterward, I went and sat quietly and thought about the days when I ran through the jungle, swung from guava trees 
and ate mangoes until my belly hurt. I thought about the day when I was sent to the white school three miles away. It wasn't socially acceptable in those days for a white kid to go to a native school. I remembered that after five days of attending the white school, I just stopped attending there and snuck over to the native school and asked the teacher if I could stay. I was the first white kid to attend that primary school. I was lucky in Fiji as they taught in English. Those were some of the best years of my life, running free, swimming and playing rugby. Sure, I got a few beatings from the principal. It may be hard to imagine, but I was not the best little kid on the island. I know that if Ritalin had been available in those days, they would have given me a double dose. Even today, Jackie says she's tempted to put some in my hot chocolate. I found out years later that my dad had spoken to the principal of the Fijian school. Master Manu was a huge six foot five inch tall, 300 pound Tongan. Dad told him that he didn't want the native kids to feel that because I was white, I would be given any special treatment. The principal took him seriously and I got more than my share of punishments. If you got any questions wrong on a test, the principal would take a small stick and wrap you over the knuckles. If you were caught talking in class, then it was a snap of the stick on the tip of the ear. Ouch! I can still feel it today. If you failed to do your homework, then you were sent out to the bush after school to peel the bark from a tree that was used for medicine. Let me tell you, that was not an easy job. I only went once. Now, here I was back in the South Pacific again. I could not believe that after 20 years, things had not changed much. The thing that hit me the hardest was the strong, open racism by the whites toward the natives that still existed. The homes of the white teachers were air-conditioned. They had running water and solar hot water systems on their roofs. They had nice new cars shipped over from Australia and they still taught their children separate from the natives. I could not believe it. The school library still had the same books that I had used as a child. The food served was no different from when I was there. The bad tasting cassava, a staple food in the South Pacific, was still served, along with perhaps a sweet potato every once in a while. The children were still getting boils on their legs due to poor nutrition. I too had my share of boils as a kid. I walked down to the small native home that my father insisted we live in when we were there. We were offered one of the houses for white people, but my dad said no. I admire him to this day for his strong belief that we were all created equal. He would not believe one thing and live another. It was through his example that I learned life's greatest lessons, more so than anything he ever said. One of my friends, Simeone Nakasamai, who had been in my dad's mechanics class, 
told me that years after we had left, he became the mechanic and the maintenance man for the school. He told me a story that made my blood boil. He said that one day, a white teacher called him to fix a broken electric water pump that moved water from a large rain barrel on the side of the house up to a small barrel on the roof so they could have running water in the house. Simi took the pump off and said he would try to fix it. However, the teacher did not want to wait and demanded that Simi go to town and purchase a new one immediately. Simi did just what he was told. A few days later, Simi decided to take the old one apart. Regardless of the teacher's position on the matter, he found the problem and repaired it. He then made the decision to take it down to the home of a native teacher who only had a hand pump. It took this teacher more than an hour each morning to hand pump sufficient water for the day up to the roof tank for his wife and five children. Just days after installing the electric pump for the native teacher, Simi was called into the office by the white teacher and asked what he had done with the broken pump. He explained what he had done. The teacher promptly told him to remove it and put it in the spare parts room to be saved as a replacement for the white homes. Simi refused and was fired. He took his family and left the school to look for another job. I could not believe things like that were still happening. How could people who were there as missionaries treat the people they were supposed to help this way? I was outraged. I vowed right then and there to see if I could help the people I loved, the people I consider my brothers and sisters, people who are no different from you and me. After spending several more days there, I returned home and described to Jackie everything I had seen. I told her that we needed to help in whatever way we could. I explained that I wanted to try to help the children there get a better education. I believe then and now that the only way to encourage anyone is to give them the tools to help themselves. And one of the best tools is education. You see, I did not get much of an education. I barely made it to ninth grade. Maybe that is why I believe so strongly that it's the key to a better life, especially in third world countries. I cannot tell you how I struggled when I returned to Canada due to my lack of schooling. For the first year, I could not even speak English well enough for people to understand me. As for my spelling, well, all I can say is, thank you, spell check. After returning, I decided that I would try to set up an industry at each school the following year. Jackie asked, why next year? Why not now? It was a good question. So, less than three months later, we were back in Fiji setting up two sawmills. That's what we've been doing now for the past 10 years, setting up a bakery, sawmills, sending tractors for farming and replenishing libraries. We have distributed thousands of pounds of clothing, medical supplies and building materials. In fact, 
more than a million pounds of aid have been shipped since 1995. By the way, our friend Simi did another job. He works with me as president of Partners for Others in Fiji. Since 1995, Simi and his wife, Makalisi, and their three sons have helped distribute all the goods that we send throughout the South Pacific. A reflection from this story comes from Christ Object Lessons, page 149. Angels are watching with intense interest to see how man is dealing with his fellow men. When they see one manifest Christ-like sympathy for the erring, they press to his side and bring to his remembrance words to speak that will be as bread of life to the soul. So God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 This story, Going Back and Giving Back, was used with the permission of Ryan Jackie Brosiuk of Partners for Others in British Columbia, Canada. You can visit the website for more information, partnersforothers.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.